It's Wednesday, May 16th, and this is The Daily Dive. As leaks continue to flow out of the administration, there are new reports about the efforts to keep them at a minimum. An anti-leaking squad has been implemented at the White House. Staffers must put their personal devices in lockers, and men in suits sweep rooms with large handheld gadgets that detect non-government-issued devices. We will speak to Axios News Editor Lauren Meyer for more on the leaks. We will also speak about Twitter's latest strategy to battle internet trolls. They will be using behavioral signals to identify those harassing others and limit the visibility of their tweets in an effort to make the platform a better place for healthier conversations. We'll speak to Reuters tech correspondent David Ingram for more on this. Finally, a team of aviation experts think that they have solved the mystery of Malaysia Airlines Flight 370. Four years after it crashed into the Indian Ocean, never to be found again, experts who spoke to 60 Minutes Australia say that the flight captain deliberately crashed the plane. We will tell you exactly how they think he did it. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. If you aren't able in internal meetings to speak your mind or, or convey thoughts or say anything that you feel uh, without feeling like your colleagues will betray you, that creates a very difficult work environment. I think anybody who works anywhere could recognize that. Joining us now is Lauren Meyer. She's an Axios news editor. So uh, leaks continue to, to plague this White House. Uh, officials spoke to CNN and described what the new efforts are, uh, hiding phones of staffers. They can't check their phones all day. And then you get this kind of funny visual where staffers are huddled around the lockers later in the day, checking their phones, all their past messages. One of your colleagues at Axios, Jonathan Swan, wrote an article about White House leakers on why they leak. What did he come across in, in that article? These leaks are coming in all shapes and sizes, from highly sensitive Oval Office conversations to talks in cabinet meetings, even events in the Situation Room. You name it, likely it's going to get leaked. Following the very damning leak last week about Kelly Sather's remark on Senator John McCain, where she said, quote, she's dying anyways, Sarah Sanders gathered her press team last week to tell them how disturbed she was that they're leaking information from inside their meetings. Our sources here at Axios have told us she was pretty emotional during the meeting and said she noted how disappointing it was that the conversation she was having with them in that moment would likely be leaked as well. And that's exactly what happened. Why are people leaking? I mean, there's no notoriety behind a leak if, uh, you know, your sources are always kept uh, secret. What is the motivation for giving out some sensitive information like that? doing the leaking now, they've told us that every leak has its own motivation. So whether that's to settle a score, to drive home a narrative, to influence a policy, or serve some sort of personal vendetta, these leaks are largely thought out and strategic, and these leakers know what they're doing. So people working in the White House leaking information to reporters and agencies, while they may be proud of working in this administration, the White House, this White House is really one that we've never seen before. So they clearly feel that they have plenty of stories that they believe need to be heard. We've been told by several leakers that they try to cover their tracks by paying attention to other staffers' idioms that they use in their background quotes to try and throw the sense off. And another very large reason why we're hearing people are putting this sensitive information out there is to make sure that there's an accurate record of what's really going on in the White House. 
house. Back to what this quote-unquote anti-leaking squad does, they're saying they have people sweeping the room for phones and other devices that aren't government-issued. So it kind of seems like it really creates this environment there that's not very open. You know, uh, I think Rod Shaw was saying something to that effect on Monday, saying that it's really a weird environment when people can't speak their mind openly because you're afraid somebody's going to say something about you. Does this promote more leaks or how do you think that works? It likely could. These leaks have been going on for a while and we're not seeing them getting any better anytime soon. Early on in the administration, we saw Sean Spicer try to get everyone at the White House to turn in their phones to help prevent leaking. And that story itself was even late. The president tried to get everyone to sign privacy disclosures very early on. Fast forward to a few months when John Kelly first became White House chief of staff. He claimed that he was going to crack down even harder on these leaks. And while we did see that for a short time, I'd argue that the leaks we're seeing now are as bad as they've ever been. This has been going on since before Trump was elected, through when Steve Bannon and Ryan Priebus were still in the White House. And here we are today. These leaks are often worse than the last, and they're not trivial or minor leaks. We're seeing huge stories inside the White House being folded and passed on to reporters very candidly. Yeah, they're very damaging. And uh, like you were saying, this stuff has been been going on for a long time. Other past administrations, it's been always happened. Staffers are always talking to reporters. Reporters are always working their sources. But there is this new level of scrutiny on this administration. Anything you can find out about it, people want to know. The floodgates are open and it doesn't really seem like it's going to stop anytime soon. Absolutely. And my colleagues and myself have been talking to people both in this current administration as well as previous administrations about leaks and the motivations behind them. And first of all, what we found was that people from previous administrations have really harped on just how unprecedented and quite mind-blowing this is for White House leaks to be happening in real time. It's unlike anything we've seen from previous administrations. It seems as though we learn more about what's going on inside the Trump White House in a week than we did in a year of the second Bush presidency. So while this administration almost prides themselves on being different and shaking up traditional Washington politics, this way of doing it certainly isn't really playing to their favor. And last question, when you guys get a leak or something, you know, you guys follow up, obviously, do you traditionally do the, you know, I need two sources to confirm this or what steps do you take to confirm these leaks? So we do prefer two sources here at Axios and widely across the media industry, but every source depends on their title, their position, and how much you trust these people. So the people that my colleague Jonathan Swan has been talking to, these are often very developed relationships that occur over time and you can really build up some a lot of trust in the sources that we are talking to. Lauren Meyer, Axios News Editor, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Joining us now is David Ingram. He's a tech correspondent for Reuters. Social media firms, Twitter, Facebook, they're all under a lot of pressure to remove uh, bullies, trolls off of their platforms. Twitter specifically already lets you block people that are putting out offensive stuff. You can mute people. Uh, But they're coming out with a new tool to help fight these trolls. What is that? So what they're going to do is they're looking at the behavior of different accounts, and they're going to sort of draw inferences from that behavior. And um, they're not going to take down people's tweets 
based on this, but they are going to put um, those tweets lower down in certain parts of Twitter. So um, there might not be any changes that you might see in the timeline, which is sort of the, the, the main signature part of Twitter, but you might um, find that these kind of tweets are lower down in the search results or, um, or, or the replies to tweets, the conversation, which is already not chronological. It's, it's algorithmically ordered. And so Twitter wants to, to have these tweets appear lower down. CEO Jack Dorsey called a meeting, he invited a lot of journalists. You you were available to be there as well, right? That's right. I was there on Monday. What did he have to say about all this? Jack has uh, been speaking a lot recently about wanting to make Twitter a place for healthy discussions. And it's a pretty monumental shift for Twitter, a company that um, years ago used to refer to itself famously as the free speech wing of the free speech party, a very absolutist take on free speech. And the company uh, didn't, unlike Facebook, Twitter did not uh, prohibit hate speech. Um, now they, they sort of do if you read their terms closely. And they are now, instead of, uh, I mean, I, I think they are still holding themselves out as a, as a champion of free speech in a place where discussions can happen. And Jack Dorsey has taken a personal interest in making sure that these are more civil discussions, that there's less harassment, that there are not simply echo chambers. There's sort of a variety of problems that he's trying to put under this umbrella of healthy discussions. And what are these behavioral things that they're looking at? It seems like they're trying to crack down on fake users. Part of it was people that are signing up for multiple accounts. What else are they looking at? They're, they're looking for people. It's, it's funny that the, they're sort of describing these as, as um, these are actions that, you know, they wouldn't be against Twitter's terms of service. Um, but, but when they see um, accounts acting in this certain way, they sort of think that those accounts are more likely to be disrupting conversations. So um, part of it is signing up, for mul- signing up for multiple accounts at the same time. Um, another example they gave was, was if, um, if you tweet at people frequently who don't follow you, um, that, again, is not against Twitter's rules, but, it, but if you do it often enough, it might be a sign of harassment. Um, if you haven't verified your email address, that may be a sign that you are uh, potentially acting like a troll or, or more likely to act like a troll. And um, they say there are, are many of these signals, not all of which they are going to describe publicly because they don't want to allow people to game the system, but they are going to use all these signals to try to have these tweets appear lower in, in people's uh, search results. Right. So the, exactly. So the goal is to have them kind of buried underneath other, you know, other tweets, other responses. How does it currently work? It's one of those um, parts of social media that is still confounding a lot of people. The algorithm is still largely unknown. So if you if you go to a popular Twitter account or, or a tweet that's been retweeted and has a lot of replies, it's not always clear why the replies are ranked the way they are. I mean, clearly some of the things that play a role are replies by verified users um, are ranked higher and search results. You can look at search, search results in different ways, including uh, chronologically, but they aren't going to sort of disclose the precise algorithm that they're using to uh, to power this this change. They've had some success, right? And, and some of this testing, they said it, they've noticed a decreased amount of people saying that people are being trolls or, you know, bothering them. Right. The metric they're looking at is just reports that originate from these parts of Twitter. So um, how many reports of abuse are there originating from a tweet that people saw in the search results, for example? You know, it's a single digit decrease that they saw as a result of uh, testing 
this new feature, which is probably not a huge change, I think, for most people. But I think any way that Twitter can move the needle, they, they, they see it as a victory. Right. And it's just to make it the experience more pleasant. Hopefully, more people sign up or stay there, use the service longer. Obviously, it's tied to ads. So if, you yeah. know, if you're on the site longer, you're going to be possibility of clicking more ads, absorbing more ads. So that's basically what you know this whole thing is about. Yeah. I mean, Twitter is... It, um it's actually a newly profitable company. They they turned their first profit uh, just several months ago, and now are officially you know a, a company that that could potentially survive uh, the long haul. That it's fact that it's actually not losing money every quarter, and I think they want to continue that. And, and one of the reasons, one of the ways that they hope to continue to be a thriving or at least a continuing business is to keep people coming back and then keep showing those people more ads. And it's hard to get people to keep coming back if if Twitter is filled with abusers. David Ingram, tech correspondent. For Reuters. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you. The logic that was used is based on evidence that's not correct. Uh, so, which parts of the evidence are not correct? The fact that the airplane ran out of fuel. It didn't run out of fuel. The fact that. Uh, uh, so, your evidence for that is? The fact that the flaps were down and it, and it conducted a control. The, the fact that get, the, you can't get the, the speculation the flaps may have been down. Well, you, now it's speculation to you. To me, there's evidence to okay, support it. So. Yeah. One of the biggest unsolved mysteries that continues to baffle experts is the loss of Malaysia Airlines Flight 370. Four years ago, the plane crashed into the Indian Ocean and has never been found. Now, a team of experts brought together by 60 Minutes Australia think they may have come up with an answer. It was deliberately flown into the ocean by Captain Zahari Ahmed Shah. They got together. They said there was too many coincidences that this could possibly be an accident. It's the probability issue. When you, yeah. you put these together, the probabilities become literally one in a trillion. I, I don't think that uh, there's a reasonable accident scenario that That's would exactly right. Too many there's too many coincidences. So what they did was they reconstructed his flight path. They looked into different aspects of why there was nobody making calls for help. They said that the passengers might have been disabled. They really went all the way with everything that was available to them to try to reconstruct exactly what the captain was doing. Part of it was they said that he made a weird left turn, then right turn in his flight path. It was a short turn to the left, then a long turn to the right where they eventually flew to destruction. But they said that this turn to the left was maybe a goodbye. He tipped over and looked out the window to say goodbye to his hometown of Penang. So I spent a long time thinking about what this could be, what technical reason is there for this. And after um, two months, three months of thinking about it, I finally got the answer. Somebody was looking out the window. In your opinion, why did he want to have a look at Penang? It might be a long emotional goodbye or a short emotional goodbye um, to his hometown. Now, they're working with the theory that uh, Captain Zahari had built a flight simulator in his home. He knew the exact flight path, exactly what he was going to do. And this is, like I said, one of these weird turns that didn't really make sense. But it was over his hometown. The experts think that he was just trying to say goodbye. And and one of these other questions that pops up, well, how, how did they make this turn? How did they go on this flight without being detected? And this is another clue that also leads experts to think that it was a deliberate act. They say that Captain Zahari flew close to the border of Malaysia and Thailand. But the question is, why didn't it get picked up on radar? Why was in this violation of these two airspaces, why wasn't it raising a red flag? Well, they say that he crisscrossed through the airspaces between these two countries so much that it only showed up as short blips on each other's radar. So it seems like he popped in, oh, it's a flash. 
It's nothing there. And then you pop in on the airspace of someone else. Oh, it's a flash. Nothing there. This is what the experts had to say about his crisscrossing. MH370's pilot avoided detection by either Malaysian or Thai military radar by flying along the border, crossing in and out of each country's airspace. As the aircraft went across Thailand and Malaysia, it, it runs down the border, which is wiggling underneath. It means it's going in and out of those two countries, which is where their jurisdictions are. So both of the controllers aren't bothered about this mysterious aircraft because it's oh, it's gone. It's not in our in our space anymore. Again, this leads to why they continue to think it was a deliberate act. He had a flight simulator at home. He mapped out this route. He knew that by crisscrossing through the airspace of both countries, he would be able to go undetected. Um, and then a lot of other questions rise up. Why didn't anybody try to make a plea for help? What was going on in the cabin with these 239 people that died that, when the crash happened? Experts say that he probably depressurized the plane, which rendered anybody without an oxygen mask unconscious. The thing that, that, that gets discussed the most is that at the point where the pilot turned the transponder off, that he depressurized the airplane, and which would disable the passengers. There is no reason not to believe that that's what the pilot did, because that would be consistent with everything else that the pilot did. And I would be comforted in thinking that that's probably what happened. So again, Captain Zahari Ahmad Shah was a well-respected flight captain. He had logged countless hours of flight time. All the evidence continues to lead up to that this was not a freak accident. He knew where he was going. He knew how to get there so that the plane could, I mean, he would crash and nothing would be found. The experts came up with a final conclusion. They said that Captain Zahari Ahmad Shah wanted to commit suicide and take everybody with him. What is the conclusion? What actually happened to the plane? So this was planned, this was deliberate, and it was done over an extended period of time. Mm -hmm. I think that the, that the general public, the traveling public, can take comfort in the fact that there is a consensus, growing consensus, that this was a criminal act, and therefore it was not a problem with the airplane. And the fact that it was a criminal act actually simplifies it down to what can you do to prevent somebody who has already has control of an airplane from doing whatever they want to do with that airplane. Now, these are just a bunch of experts who have analyzed the data that we have. Obviously, we have not found the plane or the survivors. There's only been portions of the plane that have been found. Captain Shaw's family have told the news that pointing a finger towards him does not make them expert investigators. They still have to find the plane. This is just one of those mysteries that will continue forever until we find all the evidence. But in the meantime, investigators looking into this have really come to this conclusion that, that it was deliberate act and he wanted to take his own life. All right, that's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by John Considine. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive.